Let's look together then, having said that, at 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. And please follow in your Bibles as I read the first seven verses. Hear the word of the true and living God. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's seek God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let us pray. Great God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow in your presence this evening, coming to the ministry of this, your holy word. And though, Lord, as we do so, help us to understand, O Lord, that if we're to receive the full benefit from this, your word, that we are utterly dependent upon the gracious assistance of your spirit. May he come upon people and preacher alike and grant, O Holy Father, that we may have a sense of your presence and power among us and help us, Father, to understand your word and not simply to understand it, but may we hear as those who have a desire to implement it into our lives. Help us, Father, to hear as your people and grant us then that which we request with the assistance of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul makes reference to a kind of preaching that tends to make void the message of the cross. There the Apostle wrote that, He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be of no effect. And I would say that there is a manner, there's a method of preaching, which according to the Apostle Paul, empties the message of the cross of its power. Now, that cannot be taken in the absolute sense, to be sure. There's nothing that can rob the the message of the gospel of its power in the ultimate or the absolute sense. 
But in such a manner of preaching, there is a way of preaching the cross or a way of preaching the gospel that makes the cross empty or void of the power of its power in that kind of preaching. In chapter 2 of the same epistle, the Apostle Paul there declares, verse 4, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And there the Apostle Paul is denouncing a kind of preaching, a preaching about truth, which in essence is a presentation of truth that depends on clever or proud devices of rhetoric, a preaching that attempts to engage an audience and win and carry the day, as it were, by means of clever, cliche-making oratory, as opposed to a preaching which purposes simply to set forth the unadorned truth of God and to trust the Spirit of God to quicken that message and to make it useful and effective to the hearers. Now, as a minister of the gospel, that's something that I need to be concerned about, something that all of us who minister God's word need to be concerned about. Preaching is a task that is entrusted to those of us who are teaching elders, and it is my distinct responsibility to improve and become better as a preacher. All of us should strive to do that. But dear people, being better does not mean being more clever in the way that we preach. And in much the same way, there's a kind of preaching that tends to make void of the message of the cross. There's a kind of Christian disposition and conduct which strips the message of its power as well. And then... First Peter chapter 5, where we find this organizing principle for the topic, Lord willing, I wish to address tonight and next Lord's Day. Uh, it's summarized in our text here. Peter has been speaking in this passage to pastors and elders uh, right before our topical text. And now he begins to shift the, the reader's uh, the attention of his readers to Christian people, to Christian congregations. Notice again what he says in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And, be, and reading from the New King James, and be clothed with humility, for God resists or opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now, that word oppose or resist, that's a, that's a troubling word. In, in the original, it means to array in battle against, uh, to set oneself against. And here in this passage, Peter is saying that God arises in his strength to oppose the proud. God stands in his strength 
to oppose, to resist the proud. And when we contemplate the proud, I think that our minds are often directed to people of the world. And we're happy for God to fight the people out there. But Peter isn't writing to those out there. He's writing to those in here. And he says that God will oppose the proud, resist the proud within the context of his church. He will fight against the proud. And I think it's good for us to ask the question sometimes, is it possible, is it possible that we as the people of God can turn the abundant riches of God's free grace to us into an occasion of spiritual pride? Proud self Congratulation of all that we and all that we have avoided, all of the sins and the liberal tendencies of others that we have avoided, or perhaps proud presumption that surely God is with us as a people in a way that He is with no others, that we are the apple of His eye, and that if He's going to bless anyone, He must and will bless us. And I think sometimes if we're not careful, that can become uh, the outlook of those among us who are reformed. Can it be that we can be guilty of evil sometimes, which perhaps have provoked God not only to withhold measures of his blessing, but even to stand against us in this strength? Could it be? I think it's a question that we need to ask, and I think we ought to set about answering that question with contemplative candor. And it is, to be sure, a question for all of us corporately, but the answers have to come from us as individuals. It, the answers must come from us individually. And so to assist us in seeking to help the answer of this question, I want to tonight to ask a question and next Lord's Day evening and to ask the question, what are the identifying traits of spiritual pride? And then as the Lord gives us opportunity in the future when I'm filling in for our pastors, I might pursue the topic of humility and go on to ask, what are the essential uh, qualities of true humility and what are the best means prescribed in God's word or suited to cultivate true humility? But tonight and next Lord's Day evening, I just, want us to, I just want to ask, what are the identifying traits of spiritual pride? And uh, these are questions that I would like for us to wrestle with corporately, yes, but particularly as individuals. First of all, then, what are the identifying traits of spiritual pride? Can't finish this tonight. You'll be happy about that. But in other words, if we're guilty of spiritual pride, how can we go about discerning it? And before seeking to suggest uh, a few answers to that question tonight, I want to just simply offer some ex explanatory comments. First of all, I'm speaking about a spiritual pride and not about a fleshly pride. That is to say, I'm, I'm speaking of a pride of the soul and not a pride of wealth or ancestry, or pride of appearance and dress, and such like matters. 
Now, it is true that all pride is pride of the soul. That's a fact. But I'm speaking of a pride that is proudful of the soul. And I'm talking about a pride that traffics in holy things. Uh, that traffics in such things as the grace of God and the truth of God and spiritual gifts and spiritual exercises of ministry. Things that are holy in themselves and yet things upon which spiritual pride can begin to feed. Secondly, by way of explanatory comment, it's probably important for all of us to arm ourselves against Satan's attempt uh, to define and apply this message in a false way. Satan has his own interpretation of pride, and he would like nothing better than to interpret our pride for us uh, and to do it in such a way that would cripple us or cut us off at the knees. Now, I can only suggest a few things in this regard and, and leave it to you as God's people to think it out. First of all, for instance, it is not pride. It is not pride to be sure that you're saved, that you're one of God's children. It is not pride to say, I know that I'm a Christian. It is not pride to look at the accusations of one's conscience and to look at them through the objective realities of your own known experience. And to walk away from those accusations saying, I'm innocent. That's not pride. It's not pride to announce in the most emphatic way what you know to be divinely revealed truth. To announce that without apology, this is absolute truth. That's not pride. It's not pride to say that there is but one mediator between God and men, men, the man, Christ Jesus. There is but one way to God, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the devil would have us to believe that that is a proud, arrogant statement, a statement full of bigotry. No, it's true. It's vital. It's essential truth. That's not pride. It's not pride to exercise the authority of the pastoral office within the perimeters established by the Bible. To preach the word of God boldly. To call men to repentance and faith in Christ. That is not pride, though Satan would try to convince us that it is. So arm yourselves against such strategies of Satan by understanding what pride is not according to the devil's interpretation. But now let's try to identify some of the traits of spiritual pride. And I want to begin to do so under two headings. And I'll only be able to suggest a few under the first heading this evening. The traits of spiritual pride inwardly. We'll touch a couple of those tonight couple of more next Lord's Day evening, which at that time we'll also look at the outward manifestations or expressions of spiritual pride. First of all then, what are some, not all, but what are some of the traits of inward spiritual pride? And dear people, you'll have to be honest with yourselves on these traits because there's no other way that Someone such as myself can peel away the layers of your own heart and peer inside. So I can only plead with you 
uh, to ask God to search your heart and make clear to you what may be discovered there. Jonathan Edwards once noted that there are many sins of the heart. He says that are very secretive in their nature and difficult and with difficulty discerned. But that spiritual pride, Edward says, is the most secret of all sins. He goes on to say that the heart is deceitful and unsearchable in nothing so much as in this matter. And there is no sin in the world that men are so confident in. So the first foremost trait of inward spiritual pride is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. That is the fatal fatal error that keeps multitudes of gospel hearers from the Lord Jesus Christ. They think much like the ancient Hebrews, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, Romans 10 verse 3. And when they think of God and of their relationship with God, they always think of themselves and what they have done. Now, as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can never again be blinded by the polluted smog of self-righteousness, but we can forget. We can forget, like the Galatians, temporarily, that we have received the Holy Spirit as a gift having believed on God, not by being good. And the prophet Isaiah has a word for us here. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, he says. You who seek to the, seek the Lord. Look to the rock, he says, from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. And when we forget, begin to forget and to think, with what we can perhaps call temporary spiritual dementia, when we begin to lose sight of the fundamental position we enjoy in Christ and in Christ alone, we become too impressed with our good and too depressed over our bad. And so we try to heal ourselves or we try to command, commend ourselves and when we're grappling in private, for example, uh, with something, and I've done this myself at times, and I shudder to think of the reality. Why should God bless this sermon I've preached? Why should God bless this sermon? What reason do I dare to think that God would smile upon my poor efforts this day? And the natural tendency is to let my answer Follow this course. Well, you know, I've really worked hard this week. I've really spent time in the study, and, and I've really tried to understand uh, this topic. I've tried hard. I've labored over this passage, this text. I've been faithful throughout the years. I have been given gifts. Why shouldn't God bless me? But, dear people, the moment... The moment you or I begin to step down such a path of that kind of answer is to step over the precipice of self-righteousness. It's something we should guard ourselves against, especially we who minister 
God's word. The only argument we have in appealing to God for his blessing is Christ. It is Christ and no one else. And if we've been helped, then Christ has helped us. Praise his name. If we have any acceptance with God, it's with and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we have sinned grievously, and the question comes, why should God not simply cast me out of his presence? And I say, well, by and large, I have been a wicked man. I haven't been that. By and large, I say to God, I've been a faithful man. And by and large, I've been faithful to do what God requires of me. Wrong answers, dear people. Those are wrong answers. And we know that we have failed and we wonder at times why God ever puts up with such as the likes of us. And there's only one reason. It's Christ. It is Christ. He's the only reason that God puts up with any of us. The foremost trait of inward spiritual pride is self-righteousness. But then the second trait of inward spiritual pride consists in such prevailing attitudes as ingratitude, discontent, and covetousness. Ingratitude for what God has done for us discontent as to where God has placed us in our present station of life, covetousness over what God has done for others and what God has not done for me. We're taught in such passages as Habakkuk 2 and verse 5 that pride can produce a thirst for enlarged and inordinate desires that can never be satisfied, much like death in the grave. Death and the grave are never satisfied. There's no, never enough death. There's never enough corpses to satisfy death and the grave. Pride is like that. There's never enough honor. Never enough recognition. Never enough mention of our names. Never enough opportunities to call attention to ourselves and to our own abilities. Never enough influence or importance attached to us. And here we have to be careful where we can become so deceptive, I think, to ourselves. It's one thing for us as the people of God to crave, for example, a larger church. And I do believe that we ought to crave a larger church. But it's one thing to crave that we have a larger church so that Christ will have more worshipers. And it's another thing the craze to crave a larger church so that we might be the blowing, going church in the community in which we live. Those are two decidedly different things. And we may ask, well, yeah, they really are different, but you know, I've had a hard time figuring out which is which, so I don't try to answer that question anymore. Well, dear people, make no mistake. The Holy Spirit knows which is which. And we ought to be seeking God's face and asking him which is which. The Holy Spirit knows what is the predominant motivating factor uh, behind our praying. 
and behind our desires. And we'd better ask him to help us figure it out if we had any doubt about that whatsoever. Because if it's the second and not the first, then the Holy Spirit is grieved. And the grieved spirit becomes a withdrawn spirit. There are people that's so important that we never cease to be amazed. Never cease to be amazed. That God would ever, that he would ever permit us to take his name upon our lips. And much less can you imagine from the perspective of a minister that God would entrust to any man a handful of blood-bought lambs to feed and to try to care for them. Yes, we must have holy yearnings, but those yearnings must be rooted entirely in the fact that God deserves much honor from men and not because we deserve uh, to see our church grow. I think it's important that we ask those questions. Well, there are some other spiritual traits that really uh, we could go into tonight about the, the inwardly, how, how spiritual pride is discerned inwardly. I think I'm going to leave it here tonight and, and pick up, Lord willing, next Lord's Day evening. But, but could it be? You know, sometimes I think that and I, I've, I've seen myself think this way, that we who, are, who believe the Reformed faith, and the Reformed faith is true. Uh, I, we, dear people, we understand the truth of God. The Reformed faith is God's truth. It's revealed very clearly in his word. But I think sometimes that we who are Reformed can come to the place where we think that God is with us in a way that he is with no others. Think of when did you come to Christ? How did you come to Christ? God raised someone up, and it could have been a well-meaning Arminian who gave you maybe an indistinct gospel witness, but gave you a witness nonetheless that God was pleased to own because God can take a crooked stick and strike a straight line with it let's not presume upon God's grace when we do that it's it's a sign of spiritual pride well we'll look at some more of these next Lord's Day evening but let's close here for now let's pray